Hi, everybody. My name is Rick. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Rick. Hi, Linda. She's one of my favorites. Oh, it's good to be here. That's where I need to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I go a lot. That's what I do. Um, thank you for sharing and welcome Kim and uh, Matt. Happy birthday. I remember when Matt was new too, and it's good to see him. Sunday night, what holiday weekend? This is another day for me. Like the friend, uh, thank my friend uh, Dave for coming. Came out from Indianapolis to spend a couple of days with me and my wife and his wife Mary. It's great to have him. We had a great day today. Barbecuing, swimming in the pool, a little walk down at the harbor. Life is good. Playing with the dogs in the pool and taking a meeting and ask my friend Dave to come along. It's just great, you know to share this journey of sobriety with people you love and care about and get to know. He's a new friend for me. And uh, we met on a fishing boat and that was really cool. He was having a hard time catching a fish and I handed him one of my great fishing poles with a nice hook on there, dialed him in, him and his buddy. And he started catching fish and we became friends ever since. And we fish together a lot now and that's really awesome. It's great. <sighs> so a uh, little bit about what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. So I'm 64 years old now, and I started this journey when I was about 25. And uh, I'm going to go way back since I got how many minutes? Like 30 minutes or something? 38 and a half, 38 and a half minutes. Oh, I haven't done that one in a while. Um, so I'm, a, uh, I'm one of seven children. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Um, you know, my on the outside, our family looked like the Leave it to Beaver family. If you guys remember that show, I know a lot of you people don't, but, um, you know, everything looked perfect. Mom and dad, you know, seven meals or, you know, seven days a week, dinner at home. Um, dinner bell rang, you ran home and had dinner. You did your chores, you did your work. And, uh, you know, but as a kid, um, I have two older brothers and two older sisters and two younger brothers. And before I forget, I want to tell you guys that my parents, until I was about 30 years old, had no idea that all their kids were in big trouble. Every one of my brothers and sisters are drug addicts and alcoholics, and I'm the only one that's sober. And uh, I was the first one to get sober. A couple of them tried, but just couldn't stick. And um, it was a very shocking revelation for my parents to find out that why we were in so much trouble I had everything to do with how much we drank and used. And uh, it was very shocking for them to find out. And, uh, anyway. Um, so I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, and um, let me tell you what it was like back then. You know, as a young kid, there was a, still a lot of dirt roads and fields and old lemon orchards and stuff, and there were cowboys, lure riders, and surfers all around. And my next-door neighbors were Canned Heat, rock and roll group. I helped them pack up in 69 to uh, go to Woodstock, to uh, go to Woodstock, and I, I mowed their grass, and I Ran to the liquor store for those guys that give me a note and I could buy drugs and alcohol, or not drugs, I'd buy alcohol and cigarettes and crackers and cheese. And they'd hand me a couple of beers and put a joint in my mouth. And I got to play music with them in the garage. And, uh, and then down the street from that was Charles Manson, lived just a couple doors down from me. And, uh, and then there was the Macanuis, and they were just big, gnarly Hawaiian family that you just had to look out for because they would tear you up. And um, you know, so it was wild times. Every one of my uh, brothers and sisters crashed one of mom and dad's car within weeks after first getting our driver's license. I rolled one off a cliff in the middle of the canyon. And, uh, you know, at the same time, though, my parents bought this little beach house up in Santa Barbara, Carpinteria. 
and we'd go up there for the whole summer. And, you know, Malibu was across the corner. So my whole family is a surf family. We spent a lot of time at Malibu and Rincon surfing and, you know, my older brothers and stuff would take me surfing and, uh, you know, but in school, like I tell you about school In school, I had dyslexia really, really bad. Um, I was way behind in my school, uh, way behind in my reading and writing. And uh, was just a trouble kid in school and uh, really, really behind in school. And uh, I was left-hander born in a right-hander's world and I could not see uh, writing right when I wrote or when I read. It was just all backwards and sideways and upside down to me and I was way behind. And so all they did was goof off and stuff and um, got in a lot of trouble in school, kept getting kicked out of school, kept spent more time in the principal's office than I did in the classroom, that kind of thing. And, and I was a really good athlete. I played basketball and football, but I had super long hair and uh, they wouldn't let me play in the games because I wouldn't cut my hair. So they would just say, Perry, go. And they would just let me out of PE and I would just hitchhike to Malibu and go surfing every day. Got pretty good at that. I was a really good surfer. I ended up, you know, surfing all around the world and, uh, you know, after high school, in high school and afterwards. And uh, I love surfing. I think surfing helped me uh, connect spiritually to my spiritual life and uh, and fishing and all that stuff. You know, me and my brothers, we had a little rowboat and we'd row out to the kelp and catch fish and go surfing and all that stuff. And I had a brother-in-law who was a pretty well-known surfer too. And I uh, used to travel around with him up and down the coast going surfing. And when I was a kid in junior high, um, probably only 13, 14 years old, these surfing contests were sponsored by Lucky Strike Beer. And it didn't matter that you were 14. Before every heat, you had to drink one of these big <laughs> beers. I mean, these cups were like this big, like that, size of a volleyball, and you'd have to drink it and then go. And some kid would be like spilling his. I'm like, dude, like, take it from him and drink his and then go out and surf and still win the contest somehow. And, you know, anyway. Um, so, you know, junior high and high school, you know, I, uh, I didn't start. I was a late bloomer. I didn't start doing drugs till I was 12. And uh, smoking my first joint, you know, in 1969, I'll never forget. I was 12 years old and I smoked my first joint. And uh, I was with those guys from Can Heat and I thought I was really, really cool. You know, they gave me a joint and they told me, if you ever do hard drugs, we're going to kick your ass, you know, and they're like doing acid and stuff. And, you know, uh, so I'm watching those guys and hanging out with them. And uh, my brothers told me the same thing, you know, we don't want to see you doing hard drugs and stuff. It's okay. You know, weed and beer is good, but don't be doing this shit. So I stayed away from that for a long time, but um, so anyway, you know, here I am, I'm just this high school guy smoking a lot of pot, streaking, that's cool. Streaking, some of you remember streaking, it was something to do. Um, getting in trouble, getting kicked out of class, going to smoke some more weed, go drink, go to the beach, you know, surf. If the, if the surf was lousy, we would, you know, drink and get high some more. And, follow the guys around who had the bags of weed and had the bags of acid and, you know, selling acid, selling weed. You know, in high school, I was making a ton of money, like growing weed, selling weed and all that stuff. I was making more money than my dad. I had more money in my pocket than my dad. In fact, I even, I bought this little yacht and I parked it in front of my dad's house. He was like, well, how'd you do that? I'm like, I don't know. I just thought it was a good idea. <laughs> And then I had this really good idea. I thought I would paint it lime green in the middle, and that was all Pabuki and didn't work out too good. Got rid of it. But, um, you know, so here I am in high school, and I'm failing in high school, and they pull me in. You know, I'm going to just kind of speed it up a little bit. Just, you know, I'm in high school, and I'm failing miserable. Like they called me into the 
the last semester of high school, they go, you know, you're not going to graduate. And I go, well, wait a minute. I thought it was just like element, like fourth grade, you automatically go into fifth grade. No, you have to actually have credits to graduate. And I didn't have any credits. So they stuck me in the Dunn school on the corner. It's called continuation school. And they crammed me through my courses and I, and I got my diploma and didn't get to graduate with the rest of the guys. And that's still kind of weird when you think about it. I kind of wished I would have graduated with the rest of the class, but no, I was over there feeling all alone, you know? And, uh, is, you know, this alcoholism I, I wanted to share, I thought this one thought, I didn't think about much what I was going to share tonight, but I want to think about, talk about the loneliness, you know, of being an alcoholic and a drug addict, you know, that, that despair that we have when we start to just hit that bottom. And, you know, we just start to discover that, you know, the party's over and now what do you do? And you got to get sober and then you get sober, start going to meetings and you just like, wow, it's just so strange, right? It's just so strange getting sober. You take away your best friend, your coping mechanism, your bag of weed, you know, your bottles of alcohol, your little snacks, cocaine, Xanax. Well, you guys got all this new modern stuff they're doing. It's fentanyl stuff that people are dropping dead of. It's so gnarly. Um, but you know what happened is, um, and then I got married. I got married like a couple of years after high school. My married my high school sweetheart, had a baby. You know, and life is good. You know, I'm at, I'm out of high school now. Um, I started a gardening business and it was really successful. I started making a lot of money doing that. So I was working in Santa Barbara, Montecito, to all these celebrities, movie stars. I was mowing their lawns and I was their weed dealer and their cocaine dealer too. So I thought I was really cool because I would show up to mow their grass. And, and then he'd invite me in and smoke a joint and do a line with these guys. And I thought I was just hot shit. Remember when you thought you were really hot shit doing all that stuff, like how cool you were because you had the right bag in your pocket and you'd show up and everybody's like, yeah, man. You know, I was that guy that chased that, you know, really hard. <sighs> really hard that I chase that, you know. And, um, so to fast forward a little bit, I actually, I had a band too. And, uh, you know, I got this uh, new band together and we got all this new studio equipment and all this stuff. This really good band. We're playing good. Got a new lead guitar player and some equipment. And I went out and kept buying one bottle of Jack Daniels after another this day. You know, on Wednesday, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm really on a roll with this new band. We're putting together this music and and I'm not a real hard alcohol drinker, but I, I think I bought four or five bottles and we were just chugging that stuff a bunch of, with a bunch of other stuff we were doing, weed and cocaine and stuff. And I came home in a complete mess. I was just a complete mess. These guys went and dropped me off at my house, you know, two blocks down the street. My wife took one look at me. She threw me in the car. She took me to this hospital in Santa Barbara and it was a rehab slash detox center. And, um, the doors were locked. It had chains on it. And she rattled the doors and somebody came and they opened it up and they said, uh, I remember them saying, he looks like he's an alcoholic. He's going, yeah, yeah, take him. And I went into this place slash detox hospital emergency care thing. And they put me in a bed and I woke up three days later. I, I went into a coma for three days and I was on life support because I had so much alcohol and drugs in my system. And, um, and I wake up three days. This is my intervention with Alcoholics Anonymous, my first time with this old woman, Texas lady named Katie Doty. She's a real famous circuit speaker. She was holding my hand and praying for me. 
And she was, and she says, welcome back when I snapped out of this coma that I was in. And uh, she said, welcome back, young feller. And she started telling me her story. And I'm like, just woke up out of this coma. I'm in, in a car with all these machines and stuff. And the nurses come running in. She goes, I got this. You know, she handled me from there on. And uh, she starts telling me, and I'm like, I went, the first things out of my mouth when I wake up out of this coma, and I go, I'm never going to do hard drugs anymore, and I'm never going to do uh, hard alcohol. I'm just going to smoke weed and drink beer. That's the first words out of my mouth. She goes, you young, young fella, let me tell you about the ganja. You guys think you wrote the book on the ganja? And I'm an old jazz magician, and we were doing heroin, and we were smoking weed in the 20s. So if you think I'm old and I'm not hip and with all this modern stuff that's killing everybody these days, we had our good drugs back then too. We had cocaine, we had heroin, we had mescaline, we had peyote. We had a bunch of stuff you never even heard of. And uh, we were doing it all. I just call them snacks, right? But I'm an alcoholic through and through, man. I was drinking 20 beers a day and I was smoking 20 joints. And uh really big fat joints at least 20 joints a day and i had these big bags of weed on me all the time i was selling them and making money and selling cocaine and crazy running around town um, i mean i had the neighborhood watch program chasing me around and following me around it was like a nightmare right you think you're like freaking out but it was true because they ended up showing me pictures of myself doing deals and stuff and time to quit time to get sober Plus, now I'm in the hospital in a coma, just waking up with this lady welcoming me back to life, you know. And I was in this hospital and she prayed for me. And later on, you know, there was these guys, they told me, I met these guys in AA later, and they're like, you're that guy that was in the ER. They were taking us from the rehab center next door and showing us what you looked like that you were probably going to die. And they said, this is what happens if you, if you keep this stuff up. And some guy next to me that had a lower alcohol level than me did die. And I didn't. And I still know those guys. I can go up to Santa Barbara right now. I can walk into that Alano club up there and there'll still be those guys. Like, you were that guy. And you showed us. You're still here. How'd you do it? Voted most likely not to succeed, you know. With my attitude, I was angry when I got here. I was hurt. I didn't know how hurt I was. I'm still finding out how hurt I was as a young man. And uh, and I went to meetings. I went to meetings. I went to meetings. I fell through me. I fell asleep in meetings. I sat in meetings. I didn't. I heard less than twenty percent of what was going on, but I just kept going to meetings. I, I would be at a big speaker meeting in Santa Barbara. And I'd be in the first or second row, and I'd start snoring, and the girls would elbow me. You know, there'd be three hundred people in there, and I'm snoring in the front row. And, you know, they let me sleep and they let me be angry and they let me ramp and they rave and they let me relapse and they let me keep coming back. You know, they saved a seat for me. They said, we're glad you're here. And, uh, and I'd see guys that would come ask me for help and I couldn't help them because I wasn't sober. I, was, I wasn't completely honest. And I would throw the book at them and send them out the door. I'd go back to AA and tell the guys what happened. They told me what it how important it was that I learned to be an example of Alcoholics Anonymous because it really hurt that this younger surfer kid came to my house and asked for help and I couldn't help him because I wasn't sober yet. So I had a lot of interesting things happen to me early in sobriety in my mid-20s to late-20s and uh, you know and I just kept coming back and you guys just loved me and you welcomed me and there were guys that were mean to me like I'm mean to some of you guys a couple of guys talked about it tonight. <laughs> <laughs> 
and uh, you know, because I I would rather risk my friendship with you temporarily to try to save your life. You know, I'm known as a guy that shoots straight from the hips, and uh, and that's what I do. I think I'm saving lives. You know, I'm trying to, and I and I know I have a few guys that I really pissed off, and every once in a while they come back to the Canyon Club and they live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they go, you know, I came looking for you because you were right. Everything you told me that was going to happen is going to come true, and I want you to know. This was seven years ago, but they, they want you to, they wanted me to know that now they have seven years or four years of sobriety, you know, and, uh, and, and they come hunt me down. They want to thank me for, you know, calling them out on their stuff and being a little tough on them. So I'll never stop doing that. I've softened quite a bit, I think, lately. It's good for me. Um, I love Alcoholics Anonymous too. It's given me a life beyond my wildest dreams. I messed around with this thing for a long time. Uh, I should probably go ahead and tell you I had two years of sobriety and Valentine's Day rolled around. I was supposed to take a cake that night for two years. My wife had left me and I couldn't handle the pain and I went out and got loaded that day. And I came back that night on Valentine's night and stood up as a newcomer and got another day. 12 years later, Valentine's Day rolled around and I relapsed again on Valentine's Day and I got sober again the next day. And I have 19 years of sobriety and my sobriety date, once again, is the day after Valentine's Day. A little codependency issue there, yeah. That's a tough one to work too, right? That program. So uh, I just keep coming back, right? I just keep coming back and I learn. And I wanna tell you, more about what those men and women did for me in Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember I had six months clean and sober, or before, I should backtrack. It was around Christmas, I had absolutely no money. And uh, I didn't know how I was gonna buy my wife and kid a present a couple of days before Christmas. And this doctor, uh, no, that's just the next year. The year before that, he gives me a bottle of wine. He goes down to the cellar and pick out a bottle of wine. So I, I don't know anything about wine, you know? And I go down there and I pick up, oh, nice, nice choice, 1957, this year I was born. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Drank that thing and on the way home, all pissed off. No, I wasn't even on the way home yet. I was going to my next job. I drank this bottle and I threw it out the window on somebody's lawn and did two more lawns and went home. Completely broke. Next year, Christmas rolls around, Dr. McNeese goes, hey, Rick, Merry Christmas. Why don't you go down to the wine cellar and pick yourself out a bottle of wine? I'm like, Dr. McNeese, I don't drink anymore. I'm a member of AA. He goes, oh, my dad is too. Do you know? I'm like, oh, yeah, that name sounds familiar. I do know your dad. I've been sober for six months now, and I knew the guy's dad. And he was just so excited that I had six months of sobriety. And we're talking to this guy, and I took care of his yard, 300 bucks a month, took care of this place. And, um, and he loved me, and I loved this guy. And he comes running out of his house and he hands me a check for $1,500 for a Christmas bonus. And I go, oh, that's just way too much money. Too much money. I couldn't take that 1500 bucks. He wanted to tip me for Christmas. He goes, think nothing of it. That bottle of wine you picked out last year was worth about five grand. <laughs> Remember, I was completely broke. I had like 12 bucks and a half a tank of gas. And you know, I wasn't going to get paid to the end of the month. And I was like, oh, my God, I could have pawned it. I could have done this. The empty bottle might have been worth a thousand bucks. I don't know. You know, um, so. <laughs> but you know what? I got to talk to that man. And here I am standing there with six months of sobriety telling a, a client that I'm sober now, that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And the look that he gave me, he was so proud of me because here I am, this, you know, young guy mowing lawns, long hair, surfer dude, you know, whatever, taking care of his lawn. And he had so much respect for me that I was getting sober. And I never forgot, like, that was like so cool. It was a good feeling. Because you know how awkward it is sometimes to tell somebody you're sober, that you work for, or that you're trying to stay sober, or that you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous now, or you don't want to drink, no thanks. It can be really awkward, but that was a perfect time for me to break my anonymity with this guy and talk to him about it. And um, so that's what I did. And, you know, when I was sitting here the last couple of days thinking about what would I share tonight and this and that, I thought of that man and and that thing, because I got reminded about that story about the $5,000 bottle kind of hit me again. And you know how we have those memories, right? And I, but I started thinking about when I started talking earlier, when I first got up here about that loneliness, right? That that loneliness seemed to slip away, that, that I didn't feel alone anymore. That I knew there were people out there like me that needed to get sober. Because, you know, it's kind of like that Kermit the Frog song, it's not easy being green. You know, if you're a young guy and you're, out and you're a career person or whatever, like somebody shared this morning in our meeting that somebody she's newly sober and somebody handed her a bottle of wine because she couldn't take it on the plane with her. And then she got to work the next day and there was two bottles of wine on her desk. And she hasn't told anybody yet that she's joined us and that she's trying to get sober. I mean, those kind of things happen for us, right? So we need to learn to deal with all that stuff. And when and where do you break your anonymity? I learned the hard way about anonymity, you know? I saw this girl one time at a parade and I go, where have you been? I haven't seen you in a meeting in a while. And guess who I saw the next day? I saw her. She goes, you asshole. I was there with my mom and my sister and I didn't want them to know that I'd been going to AA. And I learned that you don't do that, right? You got to be careful how we handle it on the outside. And uh, so I respect other people's enemy and I respect when other people uh, respect mine. There's certain meetings that I won't go to. Everybody's like, why don't you go down to that park? meeting Heisler Park at 10 o'clock on Saturday or Sunday morning. I don't want to go there because I have five clients that live right in that neighborhood. And I don't have to explain what I'm doing, sitting in a circle, saying a prayer with you guys, the serenity prayer. My anonymity is important to me. You know, my wife tells me a story about, you know, this girl did the same thing, came running up to her and said, hey, I know you from AA. And she's at a lunch deal, deal trying to close a big deal with these new clients. And she's like, oh, oh, oh. you know, so anyway, so we learn, right? That's enough about anonymity, you know. Um, but, you know, I want to talk about how I got really involved in Alcoholics Anonymous and when I actually really joined Alcoholics Anonymous. With all that knucklehead stuff I was doing in and out at first, my relapses I had, here I am one more time all alone getting loaded with this giant bag of stuff, wanting to get rid of it and just going, you know, this stuff has totally got me. I'm completely addicted. I knew I crossed the line to addiction. And here I am chasing down this stuff some more and I got it in front of me and it's gonna be another useless day. And something said, why don't you get in the car and go up to that Alano Club in Santa Barbara and go see if those guys can help you. And that's when I really joined Alcoholics Anonymous. Nobody dragged me there. I wasn't going for rehab. I wasn't in a druggy buggy. It was standing there all alone, completely alone tired, sick and tired of being sick and tired. And having had a little intervention with Alcoholics Anonymous, I knew where to go. And I walked right into that room and there's those guys, all those guys were there and those gals. And they said, we're saving a seat for you. Here's your seat, come sit down. 
come sit down and sit down all the way and have a seat. And then at that time, I finally started listening to what was going on. I asked another man for help. I started using those phone numbers. I started calling people. I thought I would test somebody. There was this one girl I thought was really cute. You know how they say call anytime? Well, I was super hurt and it was three in the morning and I thought I'd call and she'd tell me to come over and, you know, and she did. She told me to come over at three o'clock in the morning, but she had gotten another call already by that time. And so I was, I had a car and we went and picked up another drunk and took him to a detox center. That was my date with her. And she was very active in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and you know, we've been friends ever since. And, uh, and that's what I did. You know, I had one day of sobriety and they, and I called somebody and they said, come with me. And we took these people that there was an old lemon warehouse factory on Haley street in Santa Barbara that made Charlie street look like, um, Club Med. I mean, this place was caught of people coming in that um, they locked the doors at 10 o'clock, but all the way up to 10 o'clock at night, they were bringing people in there. And, and if you knew somebody, you could rattle the doors like they did at two or three in the morning and you might get somebody in there that needed a bed. And there was 150 people that they housed in that place every night. And I went to that place called Haley Street in Santa Barbara. And we constantly picked up drunks and took them into that place. And there was the ones that were in really bad shape, and then there was the ones that were pretty bad, and then there was the ones that knew that you could go there every night and have a dry place to stay if they were they were sober. And some of them were getting sober, and a lot of them came to our meetings, and a lot of them didn't. They just went in and out of that place. But literally, there was like a, a, probably 100, 150 people in that place every single night. And I know Charlie Street has 10 or 15 guys in there or something like that. So that was an amazing place to hang out, which was just around the corner from the Alano Club in Santa Barbara. And I got sober, I kept going to that Alano club and that Alano club became my home. I felt more comfortable there than I was anywhere. I would rent a room, I would sleep in my car. I was so down and out at, the first, at first that I, um, I didn't want anybody to know, but um, I took care of the gardens there. And um, I ended up never cashing my check. They gave me a check and they gave me a check and I wouldn't cash it. I was just happy to take care of the gardens there. And, um, and I snuck underneath the Alano Club, there was a crawl space about four feet high and I got found four pieces of carpet, five pieces of carpet. And I housed off a 10 by 10 area, put some carpet. And my, for my first six months of sobriety, I lived underneath that Alano Club. And I crawled out of there and dust myself off. They had dances there every Friday and Saturday night. I dust myself off, I'd be on, on this side of the, I'd be on the floor dancing. And about two o'clock in the morning, I'd crawl in that crawl space and I, not let anybody know that that's where I was living. And then guys would give me a shovel and take me to work with them and they talk about sobriety. And they'd tell me to dig a trench that was two feet wide and two feet deep and 400 feet long down this property. When I was all done, they'd say, dig it another six inches and I had another day's worth of work. And they put a couple twenties in my pocket, you know? And they talked about staying sober and getting sober. I owe my life to those guys. And then I got a job on a fishing boat. Somebody goes, I need somebody to work on my fishing boat. I'm like, wow, oh, I like fishing. So I worked on a crab boat. I promised I wouldn't say this, but I was a masturbator on a crab boat. <laughs> I asked Dave and my wife tonight if I could say that. And I go, no, don't tell the masturbator story. That's what you are. You graduate to being a masturbator. You start off and then you get to be the guy that stuffs those cages full of crab uh, fish heads and stuff. So. I did that and I, and I worked for 50 cents an hour on this crab boat and I didn't sleep under the Alana club anymore. I slept on the boat and I went to meetings and this guy was sober and he taught me about living sober. 
And uh, after three years, I became captain on that boat and started running that boat. I went from 10% of the catch to 50% of the catch. And after two more years, I bought the boat from the guy. And then I bought another boat and I was, I had a, I was the number one lobster crab fisherman in the state of California for many years. And, uh, and I brought newcomers with me and I detoxed them on the boat and I took them fishing. I mean, I had guys I had to tie up on the boat. I found one guy in the middle of the night doing, I heard this fish, it sounded like a 300 pound tuna on the deck. And it was this guy and I don't have any drugs and alcohol on the boat, but he found starter fluid and he put it in a milk carton and started huffing that stuff and almost died on me. And I had to, he was crazier than when I had three more days of fishing and I just tied the guy to the boat and just, Kept fishing. He's still sober today. It's pretty cool, you know. I'd have other guys that would just give me the burden as soon as I hit the dock and go running for their lives because they didn't like the weather. Fishing in some pretty gnarly weather, but I stayed sober. And I, you know what? I got to do something different. I, th I thought I was stuck being a gardener, you know, all my life, and I found out I, I had opportunity to do other things. And uh, I educated myself. I, I, I found out how to run a boat and navigate a boat safely and how to catch crabs and lobster. That's kind of a neat education, you know? And then uh, I always loved landscaping. So I fell in love with landscaping again. And I started my landscape company over and I have a very successful landscape company now. I have guys that work for me that get paid every Friday. I show up, I'm not the boss that has a ring of cocaine around their nose on Friday and goes, can I pay you guys on Wednesday? And by the way, sweep the job site up before you go. I don't do that. I got guys that work for me now and they've been working for me years. And I, I take great pride in making sure those guys get paid every Friday and they get paid well for what they're doing. And I got 10 minutes left. So thank you. I owe my life to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and um, you know, I lost that first wife. I lost the right to see my kid for a while there, but, you know, I healed that all up. You know, I learned to pay my child support on time. I was behind. I got caught up on all that. <clears throat> I got to see my ex-wife on high school graduation. I got to see him on college, see her on college graduation. And I got to see her recently again on the engagement party for my son. And I'll see her again in a couple of months in Hawaii. Where my wife and I, Leslie, are going to Hawaii to see my son get married. And, uh, I have a great working relationship with my ex-wife. It happens about every quarter, every four years or something like that. And, um, you know, I, I, and, you know, and I met, the, I met a woman in Alcoholics Anonymous and um, we've been married for um, 27 years now. We've been together for 30 years and we built a life together. She was homeless when I met her. She, you know, she was, she was a mess when I met her. And we didn't play house right away, you know. We we dated casually and we're friends and eventually got an apartment together and got married and we built an amazing life, you know. Built an amazing life together. And you know, we we we, we did get to do this thing together. I, I wouldn't have it any other way. We got friends that want normies and that for a girlfriend or whatever, but I'm really glad that I get to share my sobriety with my wife and she keeps me in check. I'm kind of glad she's not here tonight. <laughs> she was going to come, but it's it's kind of nice to have her here and just I got you know I got to tell the masturbator story. <laughs> but uh, you know, sobriety taught me you know like it's it taught it taught me to come up, to just to get honest and be who you are, you know, the good and the bad. You know, I've had a lot of humbling experiences in in, in my sobriety. You know, 
Um, and, I, and I've learned to like, let this stuff roll off. It's taken a while, but you know, we had an old timer at Canyon Club and her name was Muriel Saint. And she would say in the morning that her prayer in the morning was whatever. And at night it's, oh, well. And I think you have to have like 19 years of sobriety like I have now to really understand what that means. Because you're gonna spend a lot of time being frustrated and day-to-day, life-to-life terms, you know, going to work, making a living, paying the rent, having healthy relationships with men, women, friends, neighbors, all this stuff that sobriety teaches you. And I, I'm proud to say that um, all my neighbors love me now. I have an amazing neighborhood I live in. I have a woman friend of mine around the corner that just lost her husband and I'm there for her. I'm mowing her grass, I'm trimming her hedges, I'm there for emotional support. I'm there to help her support her sister who's also a member of this program and her son who needs to be here and he's kind of thinking about joining us. So I get to be a subtle message to him and be an example of Alcoholics Anonymous today. The most important thing I can remember to do is that I have a, I have a duty and an obligation to be an example of Alcoholics Anonymous today. And that's what I try to do. And when I fail, I get honest about it. I make my amends. And, and, I, and I try to grow from it and learn from it. I'm so grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous for making me the man who I am today, to have the friends that I have today, to have a friend of mine that tell, can tell me, like my friend Dave said, Rick, we're good friends. You can tell me what's really going on. I am so grateful for that. I'm so grateful that I have men and women in my life that I can go up and share the truth about how I feel about any given situation. Tough day with the wife, tough day on the job, a tough day on the freeway. I can come honest and clean. And you guys will guide me and direct me towards the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and teach me how to be a better man. Thanks for letting me share.